going to study the book of Ephesians, but if you know anything about last week, we skipped over Galatians chapter 5. So we're going to go back to 5, and it kind of worked out well once I saw it because um, five or, or the book of Galatians really is a prelude to the book of Ephesians, and it's got some great material in it, and to see one as the other. You remember last week we began to talk about the book of Galatians, and I showed you how that a problem had arisen uh, in the uh, church at Galatia there. Uh, somebody had come in and began to teach heresy and began to confuse the church. And I told you, this church was not like the church at Corinth. This was a good church. This was a church that really tried to do what was right, but uh, you got to remember the time that we're in back here. Everything has just changed. Christianity has now been introduced. Some people are having a tougher time understanding it than others. We've just come out of a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the nation of Israel to the body of Christ. And uh, there are people who are having a tough time grasping all of this. And then as always, in any given situation within the Bible, you have people who take advantage of the situation. And heresy has crept into this church. So I showed you how that in uh, chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, really chapter 1 and chapter 2, he really lays down the authority of the gospel. And he focuses on how that the gospel was given to him and he is the caretaker of it. That's why Paul refers to it as my gospel. And he just takes two chapters and really lays out the authority of the gospel. Then he takes the next two chapters, and that would be chapters 3 and 4, and he lays out the superiority of the gospel. He shows how that the gospel is superior, how it is everything that Christ is, how that Christ was the end of the law. And he goes all through that. Then when he comes in chapter 5 and 6, chapter 5 and 6, he talks about the liberty in the law. And those two chapters are great chapters, and they're great gateway chapters to the book of, of Ephesians. Because in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we looked at chapter 6 last week, but we didn't get to chapter 5, and he begins to talk about the fact that now that we are in the New Testament, now that we're no longer under the law, and this is the point that he's trying to make to the church here that, hey, look, once you're saved, allowing somebody or voluntarily going back under the law is absolutely ridiculous. It serves no purpose. So he starts out in chapter 5, verse 1, with a great verse, which simply says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse says it all. The verse says, now that you're saved and you understand the gospel of Christ, stand in it. Don't let anybody take you or take it from you and put you back under the yoke of bondage, which would be the Old Testament law. Then he goes on, in chapter 5, simply teaches, in the first part anyhow, verses 2, 3, and 4, and down through a little bit farther on, he says that if you try to put yourself, here's the reasoning, if you try to put yourself back under the law, or you subscribe to another gospel, which is what they were doing. Somebody was showing up, preaching another form of the gospel. He says, when you put yourself under that, and you come to the point that you allow yourself to get back into that bondage, he says, what you really do is you make the, Christ, the death of Christ on Calvary's cross of none effect in your life. 
He's saying, if you got to go back under the law to be saved or stay saved, he says, then what on earth did Christ's death on the cross do for you? I've used that argument many times in dealing with people who believe you got to be baptized to go to heaven. And many times somebody will say to me, well, you got to be baptized to go to heaven. And I'll say, well, if that's true, then why on earth did Christ die on the cross? Why the agony? Why the pain? Why all that he's suffering that he went through? If that's the mode of salvation and God makes you clean through some systematic sprinkling of water, why in the world did Christ have to go down and go through the agony of the cross? Why didn't Jesus just say, get baptized? And of course, uh, the reason for that is, is baptism cannot save you. But that's the point that he's making here. If the law can save you or keep you saved, what's the point? Why did Christ even bother dying on the cross? Because the cross is now of none effect. So he comes down and talks about that. And then verse 9. A great Bible principle and a great salient verse. And it simply says, a little leaven leaveth the whole lump. That is something that you can take to the bank all day long, all week long, in every aspect of your life. That's why the Bible says when we get saved, we get separated from the world. That's why the Bible says we're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. That's why the Bible says that once we get saved, we are to focus on the things of God to stay the way that God wants us to be because we have now been separated from the world. Leaven in the Bible will always be a false doctrine. And of course, the aspect here, if you let a little bit of false doctrine in, it will corrupt the whole system. And of course, there's great lessons of that in history. Great lessons of that in history. And I could walk you down through history and church history and show you example after example where men thought that they could get around that principle and could do it in spite of what the Word of God said. And of course, you can't. Erasmus couldn't do it when he thought he could. The Southern Baptist Convention couldn't do it when they thought they could. Nobody down through history can do it because of that principle because false doctrine is the number one thing that will destroy the body of Christ and uh, a little bit of leaven in time will leaven the whole lump. Then he comes down in verses 22 through 23. And uh, great passage. For he says now he's to begin to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Meekness, temperance, against such as no, uh, there is no law. And then he says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Great passage. Those two verses talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Notice there's nine fruit here. But the word fruit is not plural, it's only singular. Because all of this fruit comes from one source, and they're all connected together. And as far as God's concerned, they're not one. That will end the debate and the discussion forever that uh, you get uh, some of the fruits, not all of the fruits, or whatever. The bottom line is it's singular because you get everything that Christ has the moment you get saved. You may not know how to use it, and you may not know what to do with it, but you got it. And this leads to much confusion today. I found in the dealing with Christians, there's a great, in, in, you know, on almost every subject in the Bible today, it, it, there's some form of bad teaching or bad connection or downright heresy with it. And I've found that as you come through the Scriptures, you'll find that there's a great controversy between the fruit of the Spirit 
and the gifts of the Spirit. Now we saw the gifts of the Spirit when we were in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And I told you that the gifts of the Spirit will always deal with the power of God. Now the fruit of the Spirit will always deal with the character of God. Here's how it works, and it's real easy. God has a job for you and for me to do after we get saved. We've talked about it all the time. I don't know what that job is. Maybe if you're just a young Christian or you've just been saved a short time, you don't know what that job is. But I'm telling you right now, God has a job for you to do after you get saved. Your ability to do that job is based on how you build your relationship with God. That's why it's so important to me as your pastor to make sure you have every opportunity of growth, that everything done is done in the right way, with the right motive, that you get everything you need uh, to help your relationship with God. And that, of course, we're talking about the Word of God, which is His mind. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, as I said, always deals with the character of God. The gifts of the Spirit always deal with the power of God. Here it goes. When you build your personal relationship with Christ, you develop the characteristics of Christ in your life. Can't help it. This is why discipleship is so important. This is why working one-on-one with you, helping you understand the Bible, cataloging the Bible, every time we meet together for whatever purpose, whether it's one-on-one Sunday morning or Thursday night, the goal is to have you a little better prepared in your relationship with God and to build a little more of Christ's character into your life. As you develop those characters of Christ, that in time automatically develops into the power of God in your life, and now you are fit to do whatever God wants you to do. If you have the power of God, or think you have the power of God, without the character qualities of God, all you have is the flesh. The power of God and the character of God cannot be separated. One is connected to the other. And you don't get one, do you get the other one first? You've got to have the character of God to be able to handle the power of God. And if you don't, you become a self-inflated Goodyear blimp who travels around the world thinking more highly of yourself than you really should. And that is the problem in Christianity today. So that's chapter 5. Then in chapter 6, he continues with the liberty in Christ. And he basically says this, just to reiterate, and then moving into Ephesians. He simply says this. He says, you know what? Even though you've got liberty, you're not under the law, you've got to be careful how you use your liberty. That's why we talked about one of the great verses last week about be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. And so when you look at the book of Galatians and you break it down in that light, then the next book of Ephesians, which is where we're going to move in now, really begins to take on a, an identity that helps you understand it. Because in the book of Ephesians, this is what he does. He just had a problem with the church in Galatians. And he's laid out and dealt with them along those lines about that problem of another gospel. Now he writes the book of Ephesians. And what he does in the book of Ephesians is he lays out the church and every aspect of the church unlike any other book that he writes. In other words, when you're done with the book of Ephesians, if you study it right and you get it right, there's no stone left unturned as far as the doctrine concerning the body of Christ and all the ramifications that go along with it. Now, I've said this many, many times, and you've heard me say it, that when it comes to the Bible, you need to know all the books of the Bible. That's our goal. And I know we're in the process of that, but in time in your life as a child of God, that's how you 
That's how you live your life. You, le- you live your life by the principles. Well, you learn the principles by learning the Bible, building your relationship with God, and it all goes together. And I say it all the time that in time you should know, have a good working knowledge of all the books in the Bible. But there are some books in the Bible, very frankly, that you just need to know backward and forward, upside down and inside out. We've talked about some of those books. Matthew is one of those. Acts is another. Hebrews is another. You could go to the Christian bookstore and buy the next 1,500 volumes on Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, and you would never find one commentator that will warn you about the danger of those books. You know why? Because they don't know the danger of them, and that's why there's so much heresy out there. And then Romans is another one. We talked about Romans because Romans is obviously the handbook of Christian doctrine. Colossians, I believe, is another one in the New Testament because it so firmly fits into the uh, Laodicean church age. And then, of course, the book of Revelation. Along with that certainly would be the book of Ephesians. And uh, I believe it's a key book in the New Testament. I think it's so important to understand the book of Ephesians. In fact, I look at it this way. In the Old Testament, there's one book that is such an intimate book that tells you how to have a relationship with Christ in the Old Testament better than any other book. That book is the Song of Solomon. In the book of Song of Solomon, and we studied all this when we came through it, so I'm not giving you anything new. But when we studied the book of Song of Solomon, we saw how that it, it breaks down into two aspects. It's one, Christ speaking about you and me as the bride and talking to us about us. And when we read that, we then pick up really and understand how Christ views us as the church. And then the other part of the book is the church, the bride, speaking back to uh, the bridegroom. And this is all typified historically by by Solomon and uh, the virtuous woman that he finds out of the thousand wives that he has. And he finds one whose price is far above rubies. And when, when she talks back to him, we find out what our attitude should be toward the Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. And in that sense, the book of Ephesians is the most intimate book for you and for me in all of the Old Testament. Now, the most intimate book for you and I in the New Testament is the book of Ephesians. In fact, the book of Ephesians is in the New Testament what the Song of Solomon is in the Old Testament because it explains in every detail, every intimate detail. If you want one word that categorizes the book of Ephesians as the book of Song of Solomon, it's the word intimacy. It's the word intimacy. That book, Paul explains every detail. And I understand why it falls in the order after the book of Galatians. Because in Galatians, they're having a problem. And the reason why they're having a problem, chapter 5 and chapter 6, which we just reviewed, is because they really don't understand it. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the body of Christ today in the church. And I'll tell you the reason why. It's because God's people today do not understand the book of Ephesians as Paul lays it out. Because there is nothing left to your imagination once you get through with the book of Ephesians. It deals with the church. You know, there's a number of different names connected with the church, and they all mean the same thing, even though they may have a different reference. For instance, the church is called the body of Christ. We live in the church age. That church age is called uh, the body mystery. And it's also called the dispensation of the grace of God. And you'll find all these great theological terms, if we can use that word properly here, uh, defining and laying out these great concepts. 
The book of Ephesians, without a doubt, is probably the deepest book in the New Testament. I'm telling you, it is such a book of depth because it reveals so many intimate things about the body of Christ to us that it's an incredible book to spend the rest of your life coming through. Consequently, because of that, you'll find out that that book is kind of like a hangout zone of the deeper life crowd. The deeper life crowd are people who, who really don't uh, accept all of the Bible in, in, its, in its form, but they just go after the deeper things. Sometimes you hear them referred to as hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist is someone that believes that the, God didn't die for everybody, that He died for certain people. And they'll take their doctrine for that out of the book of Ephesians, basically in Ephesians chapter 1, because Ephesians chapter 1 is a great depth chapter. Then you'll find another group called the hyper-dispensationalists. They're so hyper, they've cut the Bible up to the place where they tell you and me that the only writings in the Bible that are even for us are the things Paul writes. And they don't even preach out of the other books of the Bible. No Old Testament, no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no Hebrews, no James, no 1st, 2nd Peter. The only book. You got a book that you spent a lot of money for a lot of books that you don't need. Because the only books that are profitable to you that you should even read and study that they'll ever preach out of is what Paul wrote. Why? Because they believe that the church started with Paul, which it didn't. And so they take that and they say because he is the revealer of the body mystery, which he is, that then only his writings apply to the church and everything else you shouldn't study. And of course that's not true. In the book of Romans, when we studied Romans, we saw the great concept, peace with God. And we learned that the concept, and you find it in the Bible where it says, peace with God will always deal with salvation. The day you got saved, you made peace with God. In the book of Ephesians, we'll see another term. We'll see the term peace from God. And where the peace with God deals with salvation, <coughs> the peace from God deals with your day-to-day -day walk in your fellowship and your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing you want to remember, this is all kind of like introduction here, is the book of Ephesians is a prison epistle. And that's why you'll find that uh, when Paul, this is the first thing that he writes, first time he's in jail, probably around Acts 28 somewhere. And uh, it's a great concept for the church because Paul takes the position not only that he's in jail physically, but he relates the fact that you and I as Christians should look up ourselves as prisoners. Someone who doesn't have the right to go where we want to go. Someone who has severe limitations in our lives. All of the area that fits into our lives as Christians. That's why he talks in chapter 3 when he opens up that great chapter, he says, Paul a prisoner. When he says in chapter 4, he says, I therefore, uh, the, uh, Paul the prisoner of the Lord. He puts himself not only physically in prison, but he puts himself in the aspect that as a Christian, uh, we don't have any rights and we should look at ourselves as the same way. Just another way to study the Christian life. A bond slave is another one. We've talked about all those before. Now when you come through chapter 1, you're going to find that in chapter 1, <coughs> and we could spend, boy, we could spend a lot of time in chapter 1. We're not going to. I'm just going to kind of brief it. There'll be some point at some time when we will have to come through the book of Ephesians almost word by word together. But I want you, even before we do that at some distant time, I want you to have the outline down and see what this book is about. You're going to find in the first chapter seven great doctrinal teachings. 
These doctrinal teachings are really about the spiritual blessings that you and I have in our lives. They're incredible concepts. They're concepts that are not understood today. Consequently, the body of Christ is all confused, does not have any insight into it, and this is where heresy begins to creep in because people don't understand this today and all the ramifications that go along with it. The first thing you find is the great doctrine of verse 4, which lays out the fact that you and I were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. I want you to ponder these things for a second. The great spiritual concept that before the foundation of the world, you and I were chosen by God. Now, how did that happen? Who did He choose? Was everybody chosen? And boy, when you take that, if you don't stay with the book of Ephesians and follow it out, you can come up with every bad teaching you want. And boy, they do. In verse 5, you find the word predestination. We've already seen the word predestination when we study the book of Romans. In fact, you find predestination four times in the Bible, two times in Ephesians, two times in the Romans. And uh, you find out what it means in the book of Ephesians by to be predestinated. And of course, again, if you don't take the Bible and stay with it, boy, you can make predestination everything that you want, and that's exactly what to do. That's why you got some of the conceited brethren today who are teaching, as I'm standing here teaching you, teaching others that Before the foundation of the world, God looked down and He chose this side to go to heaven, this side to go to hell. Nothing you can do about it. If you happen to be born, chosen of God, you're predestined to be saved, you can't do anything about it. You're going to get saved no matter what you do. You side over here, you're predestined to go to hell, you couldn't get saved if you want to. Now that makes life real simple if you don't want to be a soul winner. Because I simply don't have to bear the burden of the Great Commission anymore because God already worked it out. This side's going to hell, this side's going to heaven. All I got to do is just study the deeper things of the Bible, and that's exactly what they do. And they're out of balance. It's a terrible heresy. Book of Ephesians lays that heresy out. <clears throat> then you've got in verse 6 another concept about being accepted in the Beloved. In verse 7, you've got another great concept about the redemption through His blood. Verse 13, what a great concept, talking about sealed with the Spirit of promise. And then in verse 14, it talks about our inheritance as the purchased possession. What a great, great seven great doctrinal aspects to break down and lay out to really put it through. Now, the book teaches one great concept by which all other concepts have to be defined. And it's a very simple thing, and you might know that when God wanted to confuse the wise people of the world, He'd do it in a very simple fashion. And it's a little term, in Christ. In fact, in the first three chapters, you're going to find where He uses the term, in Christ, in whom, in the Beloved, some derivative that talks about the fact that we are in Christ, you're going to find it 18 times in the first three chapters. You're going to find, I believe, 11 times that term in the first chapter. And what he's simply saying is this. Chosen in Him, predestinated in Christ, accepted in the Beloved, redemption through His blood, sealed with the Spirit of promise, our inheritance. You're going to see in just a few moments when we get into chapter 1 that God put all of those things in Christ. In Christ. You've got to put everything in the book of Ephesians in one little box, and that box is labeled in 
Christ. If you want to get any or all of those things, you got to get in Christ. How do you get in Christ? You get saved. And that's the way this thing works. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 is a great verse that goes along with it where it says, <clears throat> Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And you're going to find that everything in the book of Ephesians, every spiritual deep concept, has to be viewed in the light <coughs> that God, way back before time ever started, put all of those things in Christ. So you didn't get predestinated one second before He put it in Christ. So predestination, for, predestination is never dealt with with salvation in the Bible. If you want to get all of those things that He's talking about, you got to get saved to get them. It all starts with redemption through His blood, because that's the only way we can get in Christ. And God took every spiritual thing that there was and put it in His Son. Now, with that in mind, <clears throat> let's begin to look at the breakdown of this great book. Now, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 <clears throat> is the first division. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 is the second division. The book of Ephesians is based around that great old doctrine that we talked about on Thursday night. I think it was the first week we did it. Maybe it was the second week. I don't know. Come to think of it, maybe we didn't do it. I've taught it so many times so many different places. I can't remember. But if we didn't, we will. And, that, and I know I taught it to you on Sunday morning, but it's that concept of standing in state. Standing in state. Everything in the Christian life breaks down to those two aspects. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 deals with our standing in heaven, and it deals with the heavenly side of things. That's why you find in Christ in the first three chapters, you don't find it in chapters 4, 5, and 6, because in 4, 5, and 6, He's dealing with our state, and our state is our physical relationship, our pilgrimage on this earth <coughs> as we try to serve God as best we can. Now, I laid that out when we come through the book of Leviticus, if you remember. And uh, if you if you got uh, you want to go back and look at that in your notes, I laid out, and that's where we attack the doctrine of of standing and state on Sunday morning, is in the book of Leviticus because that's how the book of Leviticus is broken down, showing you how the Old Testament priesthood. The first half is spiritual, second half of that book is physical, and it deals with the breakdown between the two. Our standing will always be your spiritual relationship with Christ. Your state will be your physical relationship as to your fellowship. And you want to remember that. We're going to talk about those as we come through here. All right, let's look at chapter 1. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, and this ask the Lord bless us. Father, we thank you <coughs> and praise you for all you do for us. <coughs> we ask your Lord to bless us now as we come to your word. <coughs> Make it all clear to us today. Help us to understand all that you have for us. And take the Word of God and, and open our hearts and pour it in. And Lord, we thank you for these men and women. And Lord, I know that uh, in any size church, Lord, whether it's 5,000 or 500 or 5, <coughs> Lord, the thing that first thing it goes is an attitude. And Lord, <coughs> I pray that, that our hearts would always be mindful for this book. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you're going to do today. <coughs> Let this book keep us as one that we may find what you have for us to do and protect us from those that would hurt us 
Protect us from those, Father, that were within this body. Divide us, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. All right, he says in chapter 1 here, <clears throat> verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch it now very carefully, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All right, let's go on. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, in whom, verse 7, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, <coughs> according to His good pleasure, which He Himself purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one, in one, in one, all things in Christ, both whom are in heaven, which are on earth, even in Him. See that thing? Over and over and over. In Christ, in Him, in Christ, in whom, it never stops. Chapter 1 is probably the deepest spiritual chapter in all of the Bible. There is so much in here <clears throat> dealing with all this stuff in Christ. This chapter really defines what the book of Ephesians is. And obviously, we're not going to have time at this point <clears throat> to go through all of it. But it begins to show you that the key here is in Christ. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, you want to get blessings from God, here's where they're at, with all spiritual blessings. You want to get spiritual blessings, where are you going to get them? You're going to get them at church, you're going to get them in your Bible, you're going to get them from your preacher, you're going to get them from your husband or your wife, no, you're going to get them in heavenly places in Christ. You, every spiritual thing that there is, God put in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then from there, we have to get in Him to get those things. And that getting in Him means you have to get saved. When you get saved, that term simply means you are now in Christ. And once you're in Christ, you now have the doors open to you for all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's why for a child of God, there are no limits. There are no limits for you and for me as a child of God other than the limits that you and I put upon ourselves because of our flesh. Other than that, it's wide open. You can do whatever you want to do for God within confines of the Scriptures as long as you understand that the only person... And, I, you know, and all my life I've heard people blame their lack of spiritual growth or their spiritual problems on somebody else or something else. And I just laugh at them. I absolutely laugh at them because that is the most ludicrous thing in all the world to say that a circumstance... Or somebody else will stop you from spiritual growth. There's only one person that will stop you from growing, and that is you. And your choice to stop growing because you don't want to. Now, you may blame it on everything else, but you'll want to package it up and sell that to somebody else because I ain't buying it. Chapter 2. What a great chapter on the concept of the Jew and Gentile in one body. Now, this is a new issue. <clears throat> this is what's called the body mystery. 
The mystery of the body is how the Jew, who is one identity group in the world, and the Gentile, the other identity group in the world, who all through the Old Testament are at odds with each other, finally in the New Testament become one in Christ Jesus. And this is what this great chapter deals with. He talks about in verses 1 through 6 that the Gentiles were God's enemies. That's you and me. And of course we saw this from Romans 1, Romans 3, and Romans 10. Then he breaks into verses 11 and 12, <coughs> and he talks about how that the Jews hated us also. Of course we find that in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11. Then in verse 13 he says, even though the Gentiles are God's enemies, and the Jews are our enemies, he says in verse 13, but now we're made one body by the blood of Christ. And he says in verse 13 and 14, <coughs> But now in Christ Jesus, see it all in Christ Jesus, ye, you and me, Gentiles, who were sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of the partition between us. You see, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles and the Jews were separated. In the New Testament, they become one in Christ. Because the Old Testament gets done away with, the law gets done away with, Christ fulfilled the law, and now that we moved into another dispensation called the dispensation of the church, the body of Christ, the church age, the Jew and the Gentile are now in one body. And I explained this to you before, but I'm going to do it again briefly just so you understand the main difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's all physical. In the New Testament, it's all spiritual. They fought literal enemies back there, the Amalekites, the Hittites, and all that group. We fight spiritual enemies on this side. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Their warfare was a, a literal one. They had real swords. We got a sword that's in a book today. Their enemies wanted to kill them. Our enemy, the unsaved world, wants to stop us. And everything you see falls into those two categories. Their kingdom was the kingdom of heaven, a literal, visible kingdom dealing with a city, Jerusalem, dealing with a piece of ground, the land of Palestine. Ours is spiritual because our kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. So my city is a spiritual city, New Jerusalem. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And where their inheritance is a little piece of ground, my inheritance is all out into eternity with all the spiritual blessings that go along with it. Back in the Old Testament, they had a temple. That temple was a real building. And those Jews went out and got everybody and told them to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple because it's all built around a literal place called Jerusalem. In the New Testament, there is no temple, literally. The temple is your body and my body. And the biggest difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament is in the Old Testament, the whole world was to go to the temple. In the New Testament, we're supposed to take our temple to the world. And that's how it works. And that is why the Jew and the Gentile are in one body. Verse 16 says, And that he might reconcile both, that's the Jew and the Gentiles, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And that is a great concept that shows that in the New Testament, the body of Christ, it begins to explain, and with that chapter alone, you can see how that fits into what he's dealing with in the book of Galatians that they are being brought back under the law. And when he explains the church, 
you begin to see all the great concepts and how they fit into our lives. Now here's another great concept, verse 6. And hath raised us up together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see that thing? In Christ. Somebody said one time, <clears throat> what's the easiest way to figure out eternal security? That you know that once you get saved, you can never lose your salvation. Because we know that even though we're saved, we still do wrong things. We get out of fellowship with God. We all do. And, of course, uh, I've told people many, many times that, uh, you know what, once you get saved, it's not a matter Do you need to get saved again. Once you get saved, God no longer looks at you as a sinner anymore. He now looks at you as His child. And the real issue is, are you a good child or are you a disobedient child? That's the real issue. But here's another way you know. Once you get saved, you get in Christ. I don't know any way to get out of Christ. I just don't know how that could happen. I read in the Bible over and over and over again, probably to the tune of a thousand times how a man gets in Christ. I can't find one place where it ever says how you get out of Christ. In fact, once you get saved in Christ Jesus, you're so surely saved that in God's mind, you're already seated up in heavenly places. You know, right now, when God looks around the throne, I don't know if they got bleachers or chairs like this, but anyway, when God looks around the throne, He sees every saved person up there. You say, you mean I'm really seated up there? No. You mean there's a dual image of me up there? No. You mean there's a, when I got saved, a, an angel was transformed into Bob Alexander's image and told to sit down and God sees him seated? No, no. You know, you know how he sees you? He sees us when he sees Christ. Because I'm in Christ. When he sees Christ, he sees me. You know why? Because I'm the body of Christ. See how it starts to come together? It's real simple. It's real easy. In God's mind, you and I are already in heaven. Why? Because we're in Christ, and every time he looks down on his right hand, he sees Christ sitting there and me in him. It is, I don't know any way to get out. I mean, I've got a terrible news for you. If you're saved and truly been saved at some point in life, i got some terrible news for you. You're going to heaven. God may get you there in an iron lung or a hospital or a casket, but you're going. I know Bible, like I said, a thousand ways you can get in. I don't know any place in the Bible that tells you how to get out. You're in, you're in. Then we come to chapter 3. Oh, wow. Well, I got 45 minutes left. We're going to use 40 of it here. Wow. I just got to pause here for a minute and think I want to do this. Well, he says in 3, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner, here it is, of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. See? That's the church age. Church age in the Bible will be called the dispensation of the grace of God. Now, we've defined what a dispensation is before, but let's do it again. We've got new people here. A dispensation is nothing more than a period of time. I'll give you a good example. The Old Testament... And the New Testament is a different dispensation. In fact, depending on how you count them up in the Bible, there's uh, anywhere from 7 to 11 uh, different dispensations in the Bible. Some guys even get more than that. And it, a dispensation is when God stops dealing with a man, uh, or dealing with people this way, and then starts dealing with another way. For instance, from Adam to Moses was the dispensation called conscience. Why? Because there was no law. And God dealt with man on the basis of his conscience. Then when Moses showed up, God gave him the law. So from the Moses up to the first coming of Christ, they're under the law. 
Then when Christ came, he fulfilled the law. Now we're in the church age. There are three dispensations. Dispensation before the law, he dealt with them one way. Dispensation under the law, he dealt with them another way. Dispensation of the grace of God, the church, he's dealing with us another way. It's real simple. It's not hard. And he says that the church age is called the dispensation of the grace of God. He says in verse 10, to the intent now that under the principles and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. He says that the church can know the manifold wisdom of God. You know why? Because in this dispensation of the grace of God, he put the manifold wisdom of God in a book that you can have holding in your lap today. Verse 17, 18, and 19 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye may, being rooted, grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, God wants in this dispensation you and I to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, you got all of the Holy Spirit of God when you got saved. And in a sense, you got the fullness of God. But you don't recognize how to use it all. That's why God gave you a book that lays out the manifold wisdom of God, which is called the unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8, that never ends, that is eternal, unexhaustible, which is unsearchable in all of its riches, that you may study it and read it, and this book passes knowledge as you might be filled with the fullness of God. Now he says, look at this, verse 7, 18, and 19, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. Now I don't know if you know it or not, but we live in a, we live in a physical world. I know you know that. But in the physical world, we have three dimensions. We live in a three-dimensional world. And that three-dimensional world is basically length, height, and breadth. And he says here that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the depth, and the height. Now, I want you to look here that even though there's three in our world, there's four here. How many times have I read something someplace about some astronomer or somebody that's into physics or whatever talking about the fourth dimension, another dimension? They have those theories that if you got out in outer space that you'd go through a door or a time warp. Some people call them black holes. Other people think that there's a parallel universe. In other words, there's a universe on the other side of our universe that mirrors our universe, and there's an earth like this with people that look just like us doing the same thing over here. Only better, I hope. Now, I don't believe any of that. The Bible doesn't teach any of that. But I understand the concept that there is a fourth dimension. You see, when it says down here that that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height. The breadth would be the mercy of God. The length would be the longevity of God, history. The height would be my ability to trust God because He's taller than I am and He's tall enough to see over my obstacles that I can't see. So the average Christian, when you get saved, never really enters into the spiritual world. Now, what I'm about to tell you is one of the most tragic things that I know of the body of Christ. And it is the thing that I work at every day of my life, being a pastor of this church, to keep you from falling into. 
And I know as well as I try, some of you are going to. Nothing I can do about it. I don't like it. I understand my responsibility. And I may give account of a lot of things in the judgment seat of Christ, but that's one thing I will not give an account for. I think the most tragic thing is that God's people, who are spiritual beings, never step into the spiritual fourth dimension. God's people, as saved, born-again people, they understand the mercy of God. They understand the length of God, His longevity. Many of them understand the height of God. That's how they can trust God to get through their problem, but that's where they start. The fourth dimension is unknown to man. Only a saved man or woman can enter into the fourth dimension, and 99.999% of them do not. Because the fourth dimension isn't physical. The fourth dimension of God is spiritual, and it is the depth of God. And the depth of God has to deal with a book that is the unsearchable riches, that is eternal, that has no end because the mind of God has no end. And when you get into this book, you have everything you need. You step outside of the physical realm. I've told you before, back in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks about, it talks about knowledge. Knowledge is in the physical realm. When you, when you listen to somebody like uh, Bill O'Reilly, who loves the people, lots of people like, because he's somewhat of a conservative and he takes the conservative side, or Rush Limbaugh, who neither one of those guys are Christians, but they take a more conservative approach to the liberals, so many, many Christians gravitate to because they hold good, solid positions. When you listen to them, you will find two men, and there's many more like it, I just use them because you all know who they are. You will listen to those men and you will hear knowledge. You will listen to those men and you will hear wisdom. Because both of those men are very well versed in the facts and the wisdom of things that are going on in this world. What you will not get from any one of them is understanding. Because understanding is not in the physical world. Understanding is the fourth dimension which goes down to the depth of God's mind that when you see what's going on in the world, you can put two and two and see God's hand in it and know where the thing not only started, where it's at, why it's where it's at, and where it's going. And those guys can't do that. Most of God's people can't do that. Most of God's people spend all of their Christian life in the physical realm of Christianity. They know that God is an old God. He's been around forever. We know that God has mercy because we've got saved and He's cut me some slack. And we can trust God to get us through the tough circumstances in life. But we never enter into the depth, the mind of God that takes you beyond comprehension. To understand the fullness of God, all that God is, all that God is doing, and all that God wants to do with you. And it goes to the fourth dimension, beyond the three physical ones, and enters into a situation where you now have understanding, perfect understanding of every given situation in life. Every situation you see, you will now see it differently from the rest of the world and most of Christianity. They'll see it from a physical side. You'll see it from what God's doing. There won't be an event in history there won't be anything on the 6 o'clock news. There won't be anything that you don't hear all day long on Fox News forecast that doesn't give you not only the physical, but you have the ability to see it in a world sense of what God is doing. 
though it is called, again, the unsearchable riches. The depth of God is His mind, which is in a book, which any child of God who has the Spirit of God has the ability to get, but, brother, they don't get it. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now we enter into, we've just looked at three chapters that dealt with our standing. And our standing in Christ is sinless perfection, the spiritual side. We're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, He wants you to have everything that is the fullness of God. So we've seen now in three chapters where, my goodness, He has detailed these three chapters out with tremendous material in it. We've learned a lot of things, and we've not even scratched the surface. And yet, I'm hoping you're getting a good understanding so far of the book of Ephesians. Now we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we enter now into the earthly side of things, and we enter into our state. Now we're going to come down the earth. And we're going to look at the physical things in life that we have to deal with. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, said it again, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Let me just stop there and make reference to that. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. What vocation? Your vocation and my vocation that we are called is to be a prisoner. Verse 1. With all lowliness, that's a prisoner. Meekness, that's a prisoner. Long-suffering, forbearing, one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you're all called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but the slight, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Wow, what a great 16 verses. Let me break it down for you. First thing he begins to come into here and look at this thing and lay it out, he talks about the first thing is unity. That's what the church needs to have above everything else, unity. Everybody's singing off the same page, unity. By the way, that's the first thing that the devil will go after, is unity. He'll try to divide it. How many times I've seen it over the years. Devil gets in, begins to do some work, gets into a young man or a young lady's heart, off you go. Hey, you know what? Tough thing, but it's part of the way it goes. I learned a long time ago that that's just the way Christianity is, and you know, uh, it, it, it bothers you young, when you're young, you get into the ministry because, you know, and it bothers you when you get older in ministry. But you've got to come to the terms and realize this. And it's just true, especially when you've got a young church. 
and you got a small church. Because you know what? If you're not careful, you know, you only have to lose, make one family mad or two family mad, and you leave and you start to feel it in your offering. So there's a tendency there for you to be afraid of that. And unless you've been around this thing long enough to understand the great truth I'm about to tell you, there ain't anybody in this room, anybody, anybody, that God couldn't do this job without you or without me. You got to know that. You got to understand that. We're all expendable. And the moment you fall into that trap as a pastor, where you start worrying about somebody going to leave, or if this person leaves, or if this family leaves, it's going to affect this. Hey, you got to come down to the terms. Is this God's church or is it my church? And if you pastor someday, you better learn that deal real quick. It isn't yours. And the moment you start taking responsibility for it, you're in trouble. I've told you from day one. God takes care of it. It's his work. He does his job. I do mine. And as long as you keep preaching the Word of God and you stay true to the Word of God and you preach the unity and you work to build people to unity, you're under a delusion if you think that even the best job you can do, some people aren't going to get their nose bent out of joint about something and go somewhere else. It's happened all of my life. And you know what? It's just the way that it is. And it doesn't matter if we got it doesn't matter if you got a church of 10,000 or it matter if you got a church of 10 if it's God's church God sustains it God ordains it God will take care of it and you get fallen into the trap where you worried about this person or this person or that person hey you know what I try to do the best I can be and be what all I can be and lay out and give everybody an equal shot at it but you know what I know you're going to find young Christians that come in here and they're going, you know what? I'll tell you what the problem is. I get calls probably twice a week and I don't know how they all come from. And, uh, and I know some of you are talking to people. I'll get calls probably once or twice a week and people want to know about a church. I had a call, well, I'll tell you what. Remember Friday night when we were playing softball and we were over there and, uh, and, and Danny or somebody People were taking the pictures, and, and the lady heard you guys doing the devotions and praying, and she came over, and she said, my husband's looking for a Bible study on Thursday night. She says, uh, do you guys have a Bible study? We gave it. You know what? My wife and I went to the grocery store after that thing there. I was in the grocery store, and my phone went off. It was that guy on the phone wanting to know about our Bible study. Amen. Now, don't, no, yeah, amen, but it's, it's an oh-no here, too. Yeah, let me hear an oh-no. Oh, no. There we go. I never say amen without a no-no right in my back pocket. <laughs> now, I'm not saying anything about this guy. He sounded like a nice guy. But I, I could tell right off the bat that he was a very, very young Christian, didn't know anything. But he falls into the same trap. And this is the tragedy. You know what? I talked to the guy for 15 minutes. And I talked to a guy a week before last for 20 minutes. I talked to somebody the week before that, two people before that, for like 30 minutes apiece. And everybody wants to know about the church. And they, what they asked me? They asked me about the music. They want to know we have a praise service. We have a this guy went over band. I said, "Yeah, I got a praise band right here. Praise the Lord all the time I'm preaching. I'm gonna praise him for an hour today. If it falls off, it may be two or three hours today." Never in my life has anybody ever asked me 
what do you teach about the Bible? You know why? I'm telling you why. And this is the bottom line. People today, Christians today, absolutely have bought into the concept that you can serve God without learning your Bible. And I'm telling you, you can't. You just can't. It is just not. And so with that in mind, I know that everybody that comes through the door, it ain't going to happen. Why? Because the Bible preaches, teaches unity. That's what he says. One body, one hope, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. Then he goes down through verses 7, 8, and 9, and 10, and he talks about, you know, he's starting to shut up here and going to define the church a little bit farther. So he starts to say, well, Christ died on the cross, you know, then he went down to the center of the earth, and then he rose to heaven, but before he, he uh, went down, he went down first, then he rose to heaven. When he went to heaven, that'd be Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that he gave some pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, and then verse 12, the work of the church. This is why we're in existence. This is why we meet on Sunday. This is why we one-on-one where we can. This is why we do Thursday night. This is why everything we do, because we're part of a body. We need to have the unity, and through the unity comes verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, God has a job for you to do, but you need to get perfected in that job. That perfecting there isn't sinless perfection. It's you and me perfecting ourselves in the work of God. And we get perfected because for the work of the ministry, God has something that He wants every one of us to do. You're all in stages of spiritual growth. The thing that I don't want this to happen, and I'm just going to say this, and I'm probably going to make some people mad, and I don't, but I don't know what else to tell you. I don't want to tell you. I get so sick and tired, and I, I'm not, no, you know what, I ain't going to say it. No. No, not. Yeah, I am. No, I'm not. Yeah, I am. No, I'm not. Yeah, I am. No, I'm not. Let me just say this. You can't ever take what we got here for granted. You just can't. You know what? And you can't think that you are above cleaning up afterward. I'm going to tell you something. You guys playing got screwed up last week, right? Okay. And I that's no deal. But that's God's judgment for leaving church and not being here. So, you on this side, you on this side, okay, when we hit the altar. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I watched him haul every piece of equipment out of here last week by himself. And I watched everybody else standing around here, John, about all the nice things you wanted to do. Now, did you come to me, John? No. Sure you did. You were called me four times this week saying, say something. <laughs> Didn't say a word to me. I saw it. I saw it. You know why? Because some of you, as soon as you're out of here, you're on to your world. I don't know what else to say. I'm not saying to make you mad. I'm just saying, hey, are we in this together or are we not? No more vacations. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not saying to be mean. I'm just saying that it happens because you got your own schedule, your own agendas, and you want out of here, and there's a lot of work that gets done. Nobody sees the guys that show up really putting up all the sound and getting the stuff ready. Nobody does. But if you showed up here and you didn't get your CD at the end, or when I get up here and say, because you couldn't hear me, you'd want to know why. Why? Because you demand the very best. But you don't want to be part of the process to make it that way. And I'm not saying you like you. I'm just saying in the general sense of the world. My point is this. It's real easy. 
You don't have to have a church. We say, oh, them big churches out there, oh, yeah. You don't have to have a big church to think you're better than picking up paper or picking up this or picking up the hymnal. That loss of unity of what you have happens so easily. And that's where it starts. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just telling you. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, it's either your church or it isn't. For the edifying of the body of Christ, strengthening, strengthening, strengthening the body of Christ. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the rapture. When we get our glorified body, when we come to the stature of Christ, we're now everything He is. The raptures happen. That's verse 13. Verse 14, 15. That we henceforth no more uh, be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, slight of man, cunning craftiness, whereby we lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. There it is. That's what you're supposed to be doing right now. Growing up. Realizing you got a responsibility. Everybody, everybody, grow up, understand that we're here. Then he says in verse 27, neither give place to the devil. How do you not give place to the devil? Key is verse 22, 24, and 25. He says in verse 22 that you put off. Concerning the former conversation, put off the world. Verse 24, you put on, put on Christ. Put 25, verse 25, put away, no place, the world. See? Or the flesh. Put off the world. That's why I tell you, when you start to do what's right, the world's got to go. Your friends got to go. It just doesn't work. You got to let it go. You got to put off the world, put on Christ, and then put off the flesh. It's the only way you can do it. And when you do that, you don't give the devil any place in your life. But when you don't do it, you don't give Christ any place in your life. Chapter 5. Wow, the great chapter here. This great chapter is the great chapter on the intimacy between Christ and the church. Wives, submit yourself, verse 22. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands and everything. Husband, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man that, yeah, hit him, Rose, hit him, get him, get him, get him. <laughs> Well, you didn't like this next verse. You're going to whack him with a shoe when I do this. But no man yet hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it even as the Lord the church. For your members of his body, even his flesh, and his bones. For this cause, Rose hit Scott one more time, just to make sure he got the point. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let everyone, even in particular, so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. You know, the Bible is probably, if you didn't know the Bible was the greatest book the world has ever seen any other way, you'd know it by places like this. Because he give us a model 
God instituted marriage. And we talked about this Thursday night. God instituted marriage. Marriage is not something that was man's concept. It wasn't a product of society. The first marriage in the Bible is the first type of the Christ and the church in the Bible, Adam and Eve. And we saw that. We know that. And you're going to find that he says that after you get saved, and I know that, you know, people come into the church in all different kinds of shapes, forms, sizes, and all different kinds of marital relationship problems. I understand that. You can't, you can't take one thing and put it across the board to everybody because everybody comes in differently. Some of you come in with good marriage. Some of you come in with terrible marriages. Some of you come in with, and a lot of it simply is that that is where you're at right now in the spirits, given the spiritual circumstances you are. But a lot of people come in with marital problems. They just all beside themselves because they think it's the end of the world and there's nothing they can do. I don't see it that way. I always see it, try to see it from God's perspective. Hey, you know what? Given your circumstances and where you come from, where you're at, you're right where you need to be. Now, let's don't dwell on that. Let's learn from here and make the changes. And what are the changes? Christ and the church. You see, God gave the institution of marriage <coughs> so that you and I would understand that the personal relationship I have with Christ, the personal relationship a wife has with Christ, teaches you how to have the right kind of marriage. And that's why a husband will never be the right kind of husband to his wife until he learns how to have the right kind of relationship with Christ. And the wife will never be the right kind of wife to her husband until she learns how to have the right kind of relationship with Christ. Because it's built on that great parallel example, Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And that's why when you come down through here, you'll find there's four verses that tells the wife how to be to her husband. There's nine verses given to the husband. You know why? Because it's the husband's responsibility to do what's right. And as you build your relationship with Christ, sir, and you learn all the good attributes that Christ does to you, he doesn't belittle you, he doesn't make fun of you, he doesn't leave you nor forsake you, he does everything you need, even when we don't do it right, you learn from that, you love God more from that, and then you work at taking that same kind of concept, and you, you deal with your wife the exact same way. Now, it isn't going to be perfect. There's no man who's going to come down in the morning with a halo around his head and a glow off of his body that just says he's going to do it all right. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. But you learn and you stay consistent and you build those characteristics in your life with him and then in your marriage. The wife, she does the same thing. She builds a relationship with God and as the relationship with God grows, she understands how that she loves Christ, she loves her husband, and she builds all those things in. And that's why when two people are in the Word of God and growing, there isn't any problem you can't solve because there isn't any problem you can't solve with Christ. When you've got a wife or a husband that doesn't want nothing to do with a God, you've got hell on wheels and hell on earth. And you can kid yourself all you want saying, oh, it's going to work out, it's going to work out. Yeah, she gets hit with a truck. Or you get hit with a truck. But there is no compromise with the principles. And if you don't do it by the book, it ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. And this is, the great, this is why the Bible says in Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Husband, be not bitter towards your wives. There isn't a, man, a saved man on the face of this planet that has a reason to be bitter at his wife about anything because she is simply what you've trained her and brought her up to be. And at some point, you have to start doing what the Word of God says and then turn it around to get it where it needs to go. That's all it takes. The wives need to be patient till the husband gets there. The husband needs to be patient, understanding he has the bulk of the work to do. 
but it needs to be done. Biggest problem many times with deterring that is because the wife doesn't get the counsel she needs or she doesn't get the support that she needs, so she wants him to turn it around in two weeks. And you know what? You don't turn it around in two weeks. But as long as somebody's in the middle refereeing the thing and sorting out and keeping everybody honest, it'll happen. Can't help it happen. Because that's the way it works. What a great parallel that is of the intimacy, the intimacy. You see, we think intimacy is sex. Intimacy has nothing to do with sex. Intimacy is that personal time relationship that you spend together. And that's what you have with Christ. And that's how it transfers down. And that's what is missing not only in our spiritual relationships today as Christians, missing in our marriage. Well, you can put it there. Chapter 6. And the last thing we look at here is the warfare of the believer. I want to read chapter 6 here, and he says this, verse 10. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Great passage. Great passage. And this big passage begins to close out this great book. We saw the first three chapters dealing with our standing, all heavenly stuff, then four, five, and now six. Now we're down to our, our warfare. We talked about two chapters about walking with the brethren, walking in unity, walking in love, our relationship with Christ on this earth like a husband and a wife relationship, earthly. And now we enter into the warfare, the warfare of the believer. Down through here you'll find seven pieces of armor. Those seven pieces of armor, I'm going to give you the reference verses to look them up on your own. I'll break them down for you. First one is loins girt about with truth. That'd be 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. That's the Word of God wrapped around your, your thighs, which is the symbol of a man's strength in the Bible. The breastplate of righteousness, Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through uh, 14. The breastplate of righteousness covers your heart. Covers your heart. Attitude of heart. Most important thing. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel pieces. The third one, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The goal of you being perfected, being edified, and being ready for the work in the ministry is you might be able to tell somebody the story of Christ. Feet shod for the preparation of the gospel of peace. You see, that's what the mission's all about. Little thing like that, little training thing, getting people ready. And there isn't anything that I don't do that I didn't make my mind. You may not know it, but I know it that I'm setting you into a situation to see how you react in it, see how you do that you'll learn. You'll learn. You'll learn. Most people don't know this, probably shouldn't even tell you. You look at the mission down there and you go down on every third Sunday. I think it's one of the greatest training grounds to start a young man out. You can make whatever mistakes you want to make down there. But I'm looking beyond that. 
once John and I got concocted the idea about it and we got set up to go down there, I got a couple of old buddies down there. Known them for about 20 years, 30 years probably. And I said, I got three of them. And I said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I said, I'm going to give you these things, and this is what I want you to look at. I want you, I, now, I, I, we're coming down here to do this for you. And I want to do this for you, and I want it to be a blessing to you. But I want you to do something for me because I got a job as a preacher training these guys. So, you know what? I come down here and listen to them, and I know I'm looking for one thing. But you're listening at it different than I do. Here's these sheets. Evaluate each preacher. I don't care about his content. I'm looking at, from your standpoint, working with these guys, how sensitive was he to the people? You've worked in this ministry for 35 years. You know what these guys will listen to and what they won't. Give me some feedback. I'm coming down here helping you. Help me train my boys. Help me keep people accountable. You send them back the mail to me every week. You get you three guys to write them out and put them back. You put them back to me and tell me from your, and I understand it's your own perspective, but you work in this thing 24-7. The thing that I want to build into my people is a sensitivity to the people they're speaking to. Tell me, did they deliver or did they miss the boat? I've got some interesting things back. Someday, 30 years from now, when you're, I'll show them to you. But I'm telling you. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Training, learning how to lay it out. Learning how to do with it. He says the next thing is the sword of the spirit. That's his weapon, Hebrews chapter 4. You've got to learn how to use that book. You go down to the city union mission, you've got to deal with it one way. You preach down at uh, one of the Bible conferences we go to down in Joplin, you got to do it another way. What I want to see is do you have the ability to bring it down to the level of the person you're talking to? Are you that sensitive or are you just shooting from the hip? Shooting from the hip will get you by, but it won't get you by in the ministry. It will not. And um, it's part of the warfare. He says, the helmet of salvation, 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 18. Two great chapters on David and Goliath and him not having a helmet on. Then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. You know, I, years ago, I, I laid the book of Ephesians out. When I got to chapter 6, it suddenly hit me one day. It's just like all the little points came together. Here you got Paul's first prison epistle. He's in jail. And when I read Ephesians chapter 6, here he is explaining what a Christian ought to be, but he's explaining it in the dress and the mode of the time by a first century Roman soldier. And I thought to myself, you know what Paul was doing? He's sitting in jail, being guarded by the Roman soldiers, living in a world that was dominated by Rome. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the Roman army was the greatest military force on the planet. In fact, up at Fort Leavenworth today, I've got two friends up there that are both major uh, lieutenant colonels, and they teach in the war college. Good friends of mine. We talk from time to time, even go out 
Sometimes I'll go up and they'll come down. We'll, but we got a we got a thing for military history, so we sit down and we talk a lot of things. Both of them teach military history. In fact, both of them teach tactics. Do you know to this day at Leavenworth in the War College for Generals, they still teach infantry tactics based on the Roman army and the Roman Empire in the first century? It's an incredible concept. They were the greatest military force that you ever saw. When those men, colonels, field grades, you know, majors down, when they go off to Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, or even Fort Riley with a big red one over there, when they teach their infantry tactics, they have learned a basics that include not only all the warfare, but focuses on the greatest military force, the Roman Empire. And I know what Paul's doing. Paul's sitting there in jail. He's faced with the Roman world. He's being held captive by Roman soldiers, and he's watching those guards go up and down, and he's heard of the great Roman victories, and he's saying to himself as he's writing the book to the church, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I could get God's people to have the discipline and the fortitude for God the way these Roman soldiers do for Rome. Rome conquered the world with a legion of army men who just were invincible. If we want to conquer the world for Christ, we just need the same kind of stick to itness that these Roman soldiers got. And that's why when he told young Timothy about being a soldier, he told young Timothy that he had to endure a hardness. He told Timothy that God had chosen him to be a soldier. He told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the captain of my salvation. All the way back, the wisest man that ever lived in Ecclesiastes said there was no discharge from this war. And he told Timothy to be a good soldier. And you know, when you read down through this passage, I'll tell you what the real issue is here. You don't find one place in this passage where you're told to do any fighting. Your job is to take a stand. Verse 11, stand. Verse 13, stand. Wherefore to stand. Verse 14, stand there. Therefore, it's a stand. Because Jesus does your fighting. You know, the hardest warfare in the world is to not to fight back and let somebody else do your fighting for you and just take a stand. Because there's times you like to haul off and punch somebody in the face. There's times you'd like to be back under the dispensational law where you could take